Welcome to the In Defense of Children podcast, a space for youth defenders. One of the ways in which the police is traumatic for young people or has a traumatic impact on adolescents in particular is in, you know, adolescent identity formation. And that is one of the most important things that occurs during adolescence. We figure out who we are. We figure out who we want to be in life. And what this research shows is that adolescents who have negative or degrading encounters with the police during their adolescence years began to question their own self-esteem, the question who they are and what they are about. They also began to question the fairness and legitimacy of the law and law enforcement. We are Christina Kleiser, assistant public defender, Kristen Anderson, juvenile law attorney, and Kashana Lattimore, assistant public defender. And we are on a mission to build our community of defenders and raise the level of practice we bring on behalf of children thrust into the delinquency system. With each episode, our goal is to bring the experts and other defender specialists to educate and inspire us to be better defenders each and every day we walk into the courtroom and to learn more about the policy issues facing Tennessee's court-involved children. We want a world where policymakers rely on data and science rather than their gut. And so we hope that this adds to their understanding. Welcome back to the In Defense of Children podcast. My name is Kashana, and today we have the privilege of talking to Chris Hennings, who is the Bloom Professor of Law and Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law in Washington, D.C. Chris is one of the most sought-after experts in the area of youth defense, and today we are going to be talking with her about policing as trauma. We cannot turn on the news or open social media without seeing a tragic story about another life lost to police violence. What does the ubiquity of these stories do to the psyche of the young people that we defend? Chris has a lot to say on this subject, so let's get right to it. Chris, thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So first, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about you? What kind of work do you do and how did you get started doing that? So I am a defender, a defender and an advocate for children. And as you indicated in your introduction, I am the director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic and Initiative at Georgetown Law School. And so in Washington, D.C., I represent children who have been charged with delinquency in D.C. Superior Courts. So how did I get here? Well, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and I spent my formative years in Tennessee until we moved to North Carolina in the fifth grade. And really, just from childhood, I grew up with a passion for working with young people, particularly young people in low-income neighborhoods who just were deprived of the resources and opportunities that the rest of us take for granted. And so by the time I went to college, I really wanted to figure out how to be a lawyer for children. (laughs) And so I got an opportunity to work in a district attorney's office when I was a freshman in college. And I got to tell you, you on that very first day, I was told to go meet the prosecutor at the courthouse. And as I entered the juvenile court, I stopped dead in my tracks because I saw eight boys, mostly black and brown boys, who were shackled together by their arms 
and by their feet. And I was blown away by, by the sight of that. And so by the time I made it into the actual courtroom with the district attorney, I said to her, I really want to be at that table. <laughs> and I was pointing across the way to the table with the defense attorney who was representing those kids. And so that was honestly a defining moment for me. It's a day that I knew I wanted to fight for children. And I went to law school and started working with kids in a juvenile clinic. And I graduated and moved on to Washington, D.C. and started working at the D.C. Public Defender Service. And I worked there for about four years, specializing in working with kids in the, in the delinquency system. Wow. Talk a little bit about how your work involving trauma and policing, how did that all evolve? So by now, I've been representing children for 25 years in um, delinquency and, and criminal cases. And I got to tell you, I have listened to my clients tell story after story about their encounters with police. And one client in particular really stands out for me. Um, not too long ago, I'll call my client Kevin, but not too long ago, Kevin and his pregnant girlfriend were robbed at gunpoint in Washington, D.C. And Kevin was, of course, like everybody, was just furious that he had been robbed, terrified that his girlfriend was going to be hurt. And so most of us in a situation like that would get to the nearest phone and call the police. But Kevin absolutely refused to call the police. In his mind, the police would at best be useless and at most be very, very harmful to him. He was convinced either rationally or irrationally that the police would spin his own report, his own victimization back on him and figure out a way to use it as a source of arrest for him. And so he never considered the police as a source of stress. And then one other story that Kevin told me really solidified this notion of trauma for me. And he told me that one day, one of his closest friends was shot um, right in front of him. And several boys were present, but none of them, again, was willing to call the police for help. So all the other boys ran away. Kevin stayed because he couldn't bear to leave his friend dying, literally bleeding to death in front of him. And so finally, after agonizing for several minutes, he broke down and he called 911 and he kept emphasizing, I need an ambulance. I need an ambulance. But he knew that the police would come too. And he told me that saving one of his best friend's lives was the only thing that would make him call the police. And it was really at that moment, I understood just how traumatizing that the that the young people, particularly black and brown children that I work with, how traumatizing it was for them to engage with the police. And so, you know, honestly, Kashana, like most of us who don't live in neighborhoods like Kevin's, you know, would be thinking, well, why in the world? If you're not doing anything wrong, then why won't you call the police? But the reality is most of us cannot imagine seeing the police every day, multiple times a day, whether we've done anything wrong or not. We can't imagine walking around, walking into or out of a convenience store and having police officers stop us no matter what we do. And we just can't imagine you know, being harassed physically and psychologically by police. And so I really just started doing some research on what this was about. I wanted to, to understand it better. And I wanted to write about it and be able to talk about it in my court cases. 
So I know that that work is evolving itself into a book that you're currently writing, right? That's right. (laughs) And that's called The Rage of Innocence, How America Criminalizes Black Youth. Is that right? Yeah. And in that book, you talk, and I've had the opportunity to um, read one chapter, and you talk a lot in that chapter about Kevin, the client you just mentioned, and you weave kind of the stories of Kevin in with the research. And so based on the work that you've done, Can you give our listeners a sense of what the research and data show in this area regarding the effects of policing on the psychological and emotional trauma on youth, particularly black and brown youth? Yes, absolutely. So there is indeed a growing body of research documenting the extraordinary trauma that policing imposes upon black and brown youth at one of the most important stages of their lives, their adolescent years. And studies show that young people, particularly young people of color who have been the target of excessive stops and frisks by the police, report high rates of fear anxiety, distress, depression, hopelessness. And in many cases, they become hypervigilant, right? Sensitive to perceived threats, which basically just means that they're always on guard, not trusting authority figures like police officers, like teachers, other government officials. And at times they can even become angry or turn to drugs and alcohol as a way to cope with this unresolved stress. What is also so powerful about this literature is that it shows that trauma occurs not only from being the direct target of these types of police encounters, but also from witnessing and hearing about police aggression towards family, friends, and someone else who's close to them. And so this vicarious contact with police, that hearing about contact with police produces the same levels of stress, the same kind of symptoms that I just mentioned. So just having to worry about becoming the victim of police violence is in and of itself a source of stress. So, you know, one way to really think about this, those of us who watch the Twin Towers collapse, in New York City, or watch the bombing at the Boston Marathon, or who watch people stranded on bridges in Hurricane Katrina. Many of us experience post-traumatic stress disorder just from watching it, even though we weren't there. And so this new line of studies has been looking at the similar effects, the similar post-traumatic effects of watching police brutality online and have found similar results, similar outcomes to having watched the Twin Towers collapse. So it's really, really powerful stuff. And that's watching police brutality against George Floyd, watching him die. How many young people have watched that? And particularly black and brown people who know they could be next. So it's even more painful and powerful for them. The other thing um, that the research shows is that young people, particularly, again, young people of color who experience uh, frequent exposure to police stops also experience poor sleep quality at night or are unable to sleep at all. And that study really resonated with me. And I imagine with many of your folks in your audience who represent 
young people and show up in court and find their client sleeping in the hallway. And so I have totally seen that and just sort of been blown away by it. I assume some of it, of course, was about the embarrassment of having to come to court and the stress and the anxiety of coming to court. But this research really helped me understand that it's much deeper than that. It is a prolonged and cumulative impact of policing has this collateral impact on your ability to sleep. And one of the other ways in which the police is traumatic for young people or has a traumatic impact on adolescents in particular is in you know adolescent identity formation. And that is one of the most important things that occurs during adolescence. We figure out who we are. We figure out who we want to be in life. And what this research shows is that adolescents who have negative or degrading encounters with the police during their adolescent years began to question their own self-esteem, the question who they are and what they are about. They also begin to question the fairness and legitimacy of the law and law enforcement. So we have this collateral, again, this collateral impact of young people, young people of color, trying to figure out whether it's even worth it to participate in mainstream society. So it's really the impact of policing is really far reaching when we think about adolescence and adolescent development. And we're talking about policing as a general term, but that involves much more than just our traditional notions of police brutality. We're talking about stop and frisk. We're talking about interrogation. We're talking about what some folks may think of as something short of stop and frisk, just these regular police encounters. All of that is encompassed in the traumatic effects of policing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I often say when I use this phrase, policing is trauma, most of us think intuitively about these high profile police killings or high profile examples of police brutality. But, you know, for those of us who work with young people like defense attorneys, we know that many police encounters start with some sort of physical contact, you know, grabbing, pushing, pulling, tackling youth to the ground. Many times young people are held to the ground by multiple officers who sit on them or lie on them. Some young people are strip searched or some variation, right? Some variation of strip search, being told to lift your shirt so I can see your waistband. Those kinds of things are are really common among young people. And so then there's also this just the psychological trauma that is even more pervasive than physical contact. And that is the trauma that arises from routine presence of police officers in communities, black and brown communities that feel heavily surveilled, over-policed in many ways. So police cars that are parked on street corners, routine stops and frisks, being, you know, just this pervasive sense, to be quite frank, that you're always being watched and always at risk of being stopped, accosted, harassed, questioned about where you're going, where you're coming from, that kind of thing. So all of that is part and parcel of the of the trauma that we're talking about. When we talk about stop and frisk, let's talk about that for a little bit. 
What are some examples of reasons why a child or a youth may be stopped outside or going about their business? What would be some examples of reasons why those children would be stopped and frisked? One thing that I really have wanted to emphasize when I talk about, you know, police stops and frisks is that really we are often talking about normal adolescent behaviors. I think there is a an assumption that whenever the police stop and, and frisk, I mean, the law says they, they can only stop and frisk when they believe that a child is armed and dangerous. So they believe that a child is in possession of some weapon. But the reality is there's so much discretion embedded in that. And that race, really racial bias, racial assumptions, racial stereotypes really underlie so much of that discretion. The research shows that a very small percentage of people, period, adults and children who are stopped and frisked by the police actually are found to have any contraband whatsoever. If people will remember a few years back, the studies of the the Floyd litigation in New York City, where all those millions of people were stopped and like a gun was found in 1% of those cases. That's true, not just in New York. It's true from data in Washington, D.C. It's true all across the country. So young people are being stopped with the presumption that they have some gun or some other weapon. And it's just not bearing out. It's just the, the, the evidence is not supporting those claims. So my research shows that most young people are being stopped for normal adolescent behaviors, being impulsive, being loud, rowdy, taking risks, things that all children do. Black children are stopped and frisked for drugs, alcohol, other types of behavior that the data shows that most children have done by the time they are in the 12th grade. And so what we see is young people being stopped for the way that they dress, right? Presumptions being made about whether they're associated or affiliated with some crew or gang. Whereas when other children, you know, when white children dress alike or are involved in fraternities or friendship circles and dress alike and behave in similar ways, get involved in mischief, they're not stopped. They're treated with grace and tolerance and the like. You've got that, you know, we see black and brown children arrested for playing music too loud, you name it. You know, in schools, we're seeing so many examples of of young people stop, you know, for having a cell phone, for doing what other kids do, getting into fights, things of that nature. So a lot of the, the court contact or the police contact that I'm talking about that leads to trauma is is actually not the serious crime that we think it is. It's normal adolescent behaviors. We talked a lot about black and brown boys who've been negatively impacted by policing and over-policing, but black and brown girls also have similar experiences, maybe not to the frequency of black and brown boys, but they do still have some negative experiences with policing. Can you talk about the experiences of the young women and what, if anything, makes their experiences different from the boys? Yeah. So, I mean, what I, I say when I get asked about, you know, girls is, is their experience is both similar and different. So black girls who are living in over police neighborhoods, similar to what I talked about with Kevin, you know, experience similar types of trauma as the black boys. 
black girls, you know, suffer from the trauma of watching their siblings, their partners, their fathers, their uncles being stopped, assaulted, and killed. They, you know, are forced to grieve the loss of companionship and intimacy and financial support from those who are removed by police. But also, like their brothers, black girls are afraid of being stopped, accosted, searched, and assaulted by the police. There's a really important campaign, Say Her Name campaign, that has been working to lift up the names of girls and women who have also been killed by the police. Sandra Bland, well, Sandra Bland wasn't you know, killed by the police, but you know, got into a, an altercation after a, a very aggressive police stop and then ended up taking her own life. But people who were killed by the police, Brianna Taylor, Atiana Jefferson, and then you know, most recently, we got Makia Bryant, who was killed. We've got other examples. We've got that nine-year-old girl who was pepper sprayed in New York. We've got you know, girls who are body slammed by school resource officers in Florida. We've got four Black and Latina girls who were strip searched in their school. And so they, you know, Black girls experience, very much experience similar types of police trauma and police encounters. And what's so extremely traumatic about this is that many of the women and girls who have been killed or suffered brutality at the hands of police were killed in response to mental health calls or non-emergency 411 calls, calls they made themselves. They have been shot as bystanders um, when police are in, in pursuit of Black boys and men. So such incredibly tragic cases. So yes, numerically, there are less girls in juvenile court, less girls arrested than boys, but girls have been one of the fastest growing demographics in the youth legal system. It's the, the proportion of girls who have been arrested and incarcerated has continued to grow. Black girls in particular has continued to grow over the last two decades, especially for minor nonviolent offenses. They are much more likely also to be subjected to school discipline, which then leads to school resource officer interventions that might then escalate into an arrest. And I also, I'll say this, have been especially disturbed, you know, in my own caseload by the ways in which Black girls are sexualized not just by the civilians, not just by society, but by police officers in particular. I've had young girls who have been arrested by the police who then in turn interrogate them in very sexualized ways or use you know, sexual innuendos to curry favor or in an effort to elicit information from them. So it's really, really problematic. And the final thing I'll say, I think that's really problematic about girls who are in both the child welfare system system and the juvenile legal system, neither system is well-equipped to serve Black girls. Some of the most common offenses for which girls are arrested, running away, truancy, substance abuse, are also the most common symptoms of abuse that they have been abused themselves. Yet, despite all these obvious signs, the juvenile legal system is ill-equipped to provide services to meet the needs of victims of sex trafficking, of prostitution, and the like. We have a long way to go, starting with the, the traumatic effects of policing on the street, and then the ways in which the system 
can't meet those needs, but instead continues to traumatize them by treating them as offenders instead of as victims, as they often are in many cases. So once we have gotten into the world of the juvenile court system, you know, what, in your opinion, is the impact of this policing as trauma? What impact does that have, if any, on the attorney-client relationship and interviews with clients? So it has a tremendous spillover effect. Some of the research even shows, I talked a little earlier about people who are young people who are subject to frequent stops and frisks become uh, distrustful of the police and other adults and other authority figures. And so there's a real spillover effect from policing into court involvement. And so the defense counsel is often the very first person after the police who the young person will meet. And so often we will find, unfortunately, our clients are initially shut down, maybe angry, sort of hostile, unwilling to talk to us, not because of anything we have done per se, but because they see us as an extension of law enforcement. And so we have a lot of work to do when we first meet a young person to explain our role clearly, to explain that we are their voice and their ally and that we're on their side, that we represent their expressed and stated interest in this matter. And, and that our job as defenders is to make sure that we are inquiring understanding and interpreting our clients' behaviors in ways that reflect what we now know about policing as trauma so that we understand and be able to identify those trauma symptoms is the best way to put it. We also need to make sure that we are aware of our own implicit biases and that our own biases might cause us to misinterpret those behaviors and that resistance, that early resistance we might experience with our clients. We need to understand that our bias might cause us to view that in sort of threatening or, or non-compliant ways. And we also need to understand that our kids are just kids and that when they perceive encounters with the police to be unfair and that we're an extension of that, adolescents act out. They can't articulate that. <laughs> they can't express that. They can't explain that to us. And so that we have to see them as kids, kids who have been suffering from trauma. You talk a little bit about Kevin and kind of how your representation of him kind of started out like that. Can you talk about how you were able to go garner Kevin's trust after you, you know, were initially appointed to represent him. For our listeners who are youth defenders who are going to encounter clients like Kevin, who are going to be initially shut down, what did you all do to kind of gain that trust and get him to the point where he was comfortable with you and your representation? So the number one answer to that is time, time, time. So investing time in our clients, being persistent. So when they shut down, when they're angry, when they slam the phone down, when they curse us out, when they tell us they don't want to talk, that we stay the course and that we go back time and time again. And really that is what happened, you know, with us, you know, with me, with Kevin is just we kept showing up. And no matter what he did, no matter what he said, we will always be there for him, fighting for him. So that's the first thing. The second thing is really speaking to him from a place of humility, saying, look, I can't possibly understand all that you have been going through, both in the system and out. But 
let me try. So asking for that invitation in and saying, let me try to learn as much as I can. So one of the things that I try to do whenever possible is meet the clients where they are and not just, you know, emotionally and intellectually, but physically. So going to their neighborhood, seeing them in their environment, because the courthouse is stressful. Coming to my office is stressful. So let me get there. Let me see you where you are. And, you know, Kevin, for example, was really, he's and he was into music, you know, he you know, knew how to have a good time. He really liked fashion. So being able to see him in his own environment really made a difference. Another thing that I always say is really keep every promise that you make to your clients and make sure that we understand that sometimes what we don't mean as a promise sounds to a teenager like a promise. Like if I say, I'm going to come see you at the detention facility this afternoon, you know, you might be thinking I'm a try if I get out of court early enough. He hears that as you have promised. I think another thing is acknowledging that he may have been harmed, that our clients may have been harmed by other lawyers in the past, other legal teams in the past, either through microaggressions or through some sort of implicit bias and asking our clients to hold us accountable. If I do something wrong, if I say something wrong, tell me so I can fix it. Let's do this together. So I think there's a level of honesty and transparency that is really, really, really helpful. And then I think, you know, there's so much we could say here, but I think another is really highlighting strengths. So what is it that my clients do well, my girls and my boys? Can I highlight that as often as possible? Can I highlight that in court as often as possible? But can I highlight that in my individual encounters? What do you like to do? What gives you joy? So, you know, Kevin liked to read. <laughs> he liked to write, you know, poetry. I'm like, okay, he liked to draw. So can I, you know, make that easier for him? Can I buy pens and pencils and journals and take to him? You know, we don't always have to spend money but can I, you know, I've got extra paper at the office. Can I take that and, and make it easier for him to, to do some of that so that he can feel good and strong about what he's good at? Now, am I right that there are some virtual trainings on this topic that defenders who are listening to this podcast can sign up for? Absolutely. And those are free, right? Yes, they are. Can you give our listeners a basic idea of what those trainings are, what topics are covered, and how they can be an asset to their current practice with their youth? We at the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic partner with the National Juvenile Defender Center on so many projects. So we do a series of trainings, a racial justice series. And in that one of our trainings, we have many, but one of our trainings is policing as trauma, just as you're talking about today. We cover, we summarize some of the research in very layman's terms on uh, the traumatic effects of policing. And then in those workshops, we begin to talk about how that research can be used by us to make us better litigators on behalf of our clients. So how does racial trauma and policing as trauma affect the elements of an offense, like threats charge or an assault on a police officer charge. We talk about the legal standard for pretrial detention, you know, risk of flight and danger to the community. And we talk about whether that racial trauma research might be useful in that regard. We talk about the Fourth Amendment. 
seizure, reasonable, articulable suspicion, consent to search. We talk about Fifth Amendment, same thing, interrogation standards, right? Voluntariness, waiver of Miranda rights. We talk about mitigation at disposition. These are just some of the topics that we cover. All of these topics are designed to encourage us to think about racial trauma, policing as trauma, racial bias, adolescent development, all interwoven, again, to make us better litigators and also to encourage us to do some policy reform. In addition, we also are doing some um, trainings around implicit racial bias. Uh, we have a, a, a training called It's Not Me, It's Them, which makes us confront our own biases, looking at ourselves. As a part of that, we talk about race and the Fourth Amendment as a deeper dive. We spend two hours on that. We have a, another two-hour workshop that we've been doing that gives the participants, defenders who are listening, an opportunity to try out some of the arguments with small group leaders, experienced lawyers who will listen and give feedback on the litigation of race. So those are just some examples there. Also, if you go to the Georgetown Juvenile Justice Clinic page, we have a couple of webinars that we've done, for example, with Philip Atiba Golf, who is one of the leading psychologists on policing and police encounters and, and race. We did a, a wonderful forum with him that I encourage you to watch. So there are definitely trainings out there. You can always find training opportunities on National Juvenile Defender Center's website. I was fortunate enough to participate in one of those trainings. I think it was the one where we talked about the Fourth Amendment and we broke out into small groups. And it was probably one of the most beneficial trainings that I think I've ever participated in. You were leading that session and I appreciate it. Having your perspective, it was definitely super enlightening. So I would encourage all of our youth defenders who are listening right now that that is something that you are encountering in your practice, that training would definitely be um, invaluable. Valuable. Yeah. And I got to say, if, you know, I, I urge you to go on the website, you know, National Juvenile Defender Center and try to sign up. If you can't, for any reason, get on, can't get in, please reach out to us individually. We'll try to make a way, you know, for you to get in or to create some additional series for you. So feel free. If you want to email me at hennink, H-E-N-N-I-N-K at georgetown.edu, I will take your name and, you know, put you in touch with the right people or make arrangements myself to get you at it. So Chris, as we're wrapping this up, you know, we always want to end on some practical tips and you've given us some when we're talking about how to overcome the barriers that some of our youth clients have, but just maybe give us one or two tips for our listeners about how to, in general, in this area of the law that can be very difficult with respect to how we're defending our clients as well as, you know, that self-care thing that we talk about so much given, you know, we're dealing with children and that kind of thing. So give us some, just a couple practical tips on just how to stay in tune with our clients as well as, you know, maybe protecting ourselves and our self-care so that we can be better defenders going forward. Yeah. So one is having a posse of like-minded folks <laughs> is really helpful. And I say a posse of like-minded folks who can do two things for you. One is to push us in new directions with the law and the policy. So you are outraged by the racial inequities that we see in our juvenile and criminal courts. And so when we're outraged, we need to sit down with our colleagues who think like 
like we do and really begin to brainstorm. And that's what a lot of these trainings came from and the writing and the research came from is folks being outraged. So if I am outraged by how many times my client is asked to consent to a police interview without a lawyer, what can I do about it? So can I get a group of like-minded folks to brainstorm policy ideas? And what I say about race, if I want to raise race in any context, race in interrogation, race in policing, then I want to weave race into everything I do, meaning investigation. So if I want to challenge interrogation, what's the data showing? How many black and brown kids are giving false confessions in my jurisdiction? How many black and brown kids are being interrogated without lawyers present? Have I interviewed my clients? We talked about this a little bit earlier. Do I ask my clients questions about their experiences with police officers and how police officers make them feel? You know, are they afraid of police and why? Asking those questions differently, not just about that one-on-one interrogation, but more generally, what does policing look like in your neighborhood, in your community? So I, I say getting together with colleagues to brainstorm all of this is critically important. And then just as moral support, <laughs> that this work is hard and I can't imagine doing this work every day without a posse of folks to say, to, to just breathe and say, no, it's not me. I'm not crazy. <laughs> that was outrageous. That was unjust. And so I think that's one of the most important things to do. And if you don't have it in your own individual office, like, you know, making sure you're coming to the National Juvenile Defender Leadership Conference, which is really is a posse of hundreds of like minded juvenile defenders or youth defenders. And then just to end this kind of heavy topic on a light note on an inspirational note, what is like your favorite quote? that kind of gets you through the hard work that you do every day? Well, there's so many. I think I'll say this as a, in terms of at least a, a quote from a famous person, Nelson Mandela, you know, he said, history will judge us by the difference we make in the everyday lives of children. And so just remembering that one child at a time, is all we can do at times. It's all we're called to do. One child at a time builds us to a place where we can make a difference more systemically. And I think, you know, the last thing I'll say is that our job as defenders has to be, it has to be to get the world to understand and remember that black and brown children are children too. Chris, thank you so much for your time and your insight and the work that you do. And thank you so much for just partnering with us to get this really important message out. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Defenders, thanks for joining us. We hope this podcast was as inspiring to you as it was for us. We hope to drop a new episode as often as possible. In Defense of Children podcast aims to bring these informative conversations with top thought leaders and experts in our field so defenders can listen whenever and wherever they are. We hope to build a community and become the best lawyers we can be for these kids. If you have ideas for episodes you want to listen to, drop us an email at info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org. That's info at indefensivechildrenpodcast.org, just like it's spelled, and we will do our best to set it up. 